you to all of you who have served our country, those of you who are veterans, we appreciate your sacrifice. Uh, both uh, Sue and my fathers uh, served in World War II in the Army Air Corps. My grandfather served in the Army in World War I. One of my grandfathers was too old to serve in World War I. Think about that. <laughs> I guess that's why I'm old. Uh, Bridge Kids, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 20 this morning. Scott McKnight uh, is a professor of North Park University, and he reports in a 2010 article in Christianity Today that he has a practice of giving a standardized psychological test to uh, his class on Jesus of Nazareth. And so he does this on the very first day of the class. The test is given in two parts, 24 questions in each part. The first is about the personality of Jesus. The second is about the personality of the student. Questions about Jesus included questions like, does he prefer his own way rather than following the rules? Is he a worrier? Is he moody? Uh, does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or is he an introvert? And you may say, well, who really cares? But an interesting thing is when they gave this exam, the tendency of the student was to see Jesus just like themselves. And so if the students were introverts, they tended to see Jesus as an introvert. If the students were extroverts, they tended to see Jesus as an extrovert. The test is not about right or wrong answers, but about what people think of Jesus. Uh, McKnight states that the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like us. So, what about you? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Or is Jesus becoming more like you? Today in Luke 20, we see Jesus turn the tables on his critics. Um, just by way of review, uh, previously in Luke chapter 20, Jesus' authority was challenged by the religious leaders, as you remember, uh, he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That was the week before the resurrection. He rode in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The street was just lined with people, and um, they, were, they were cheering him, and they were praising him. They were praising God for him, and they laid down their outer garments, and they laid down palm branches in acts of worship. Next, on Monday, he went into the temple to drive out the money changers and the merchants there who were selling their products, and he proclaimed that God's house would be a house of prayer. The religious leaders challenged Jesus' authority to do these things, and they sought to test him. We saw that earlier in chapter 20, and they gave him questions uh, to, to sort of set him up for failure 
questions about paying taxes to Caesar and what about marriage in the resurrection? You know, everybody likes to talk about marriage in the resurrection. And so um, the leaders challenged Jesus on it. I don't know if people really want to talk about marriage in the resurrection, but it does bring up interesting discussions. So today, uh, the table is turned on his critics, and he gives them a quiz in verses 41 through 44. And let's have a look at that. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 20, uh, beginning at verse uh, 21. Uh, No, I don't mean 20. Thank you. (laughs) I can't even find my own passage. All right, verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Okay. Verse 41 starts with the initial question. Uh, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, Messiah is that Old Testament concept. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, and it also means the Christ, and that's the word used in, in Greek, Christos. And uh, it, it refers to the same person, and he's the promised one, the anointed one that God would send that would fulfill many, many prophecies from the Old Testament. And so there was this popular view in the first century that the Messiah would be the son of David, rightly so. Um, So on this occasion, it's Tuesday or Wednesday now, the location is in the temple in Jerusalem. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? That's what people believed in the first century. That's what they were looking for. That's exactly what the scriptures said. Two examples. One is Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve and thirteen, and God gave David a promise that he would have a descendant that would reign on his throne forever. Okay, there would be a king, a descendant of David on his throne forever. And then one of the great Christmas passages, Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven: For to us a child is born, human descent. A real baby. For to us, a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, a child and a son. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now it's even clear that the Messiah is going to be God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's an eternal kingdom. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So it was very popular in the first century to view Jesus as the, son, the Messiah, excuse me, because not everybody thinks Jesus is the Messiah. His audience does not think he's the Messiah, at least the religious leaders. But it was common. For example, Matthew 12, verse 23 says, All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? They were on the lookout. 
the son of David, the promised one. And they said this after he healed a demonized man who was blind. Matthew 15, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She believes he's the Messiah. and she, he's, She's not even a Jewish woman. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terrible, and Jesus heals her daughter. Matthew 21, verse, verse 15 says, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. What kind of response to that is to great things that Jesus had done? But what really upset them was when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and allowed people to say, praise God because of you. So it was common uh, that Jesus was viewed, or the, excuse me, the Messiah, I have to be careful because not everybody viewed it that way, that the Messiah was viewed as the son of David. Now, Jesus' question is this important one. How is it that people call him the son of David? He's asking more than that. What is the significance of Christ being the son of David? And for the source, we go to verses 42 and verses 43. David, excuse me, Jesus continues. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is one of those messianic psalms speaking of, prophesying about Messiah, the, the promised one. Um, a passage is Psalm 110, verse 1, and it was widely understood in the first century to refer to Messiah. So let's have a look at this passage. Uh, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a passage that Jesus just quoted. Now let's continue on. Let's see what this says about Messiah. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem, and um, he is going to be a ruler, okay? He's actually going to be a great king. In fact, the king of kings. He will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come uh, to you like dew from the morning's womb. And I have no clue what that means. Next slide. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this Messiah is also going to be a priest. Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 identify Jesus as the great high priest. But it's an eternal priesthood. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will, crush, uh, he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. And so God is on the side of Messiah, and God is going to crush uh, the kings on the day of wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So this Messiah is going to judge the nations. Those are all the nations in the world that are not Israel. Okay? So, um, we have this passage and we have this context. And uh, so, out of this, 
Jesus brings us important questions, and um, in, in verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Um, the significance of this in verse 44. Now, the question it becomes a kind of a riddle, riddle, because Jesus is going to make it a little more thought-provoking. David calls him Lord. My Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David's Lord is my Lord. The Lord refers to Yahweh, okay? Who all of Israel understood to be the true and living God. Um, Jesus is asking, what are the implications of Messiah being the son of David? Now, let's put, let's, we have to think about this a little bit because his audience didn't get this. David ruled as king, as, as sort of best we can guess, from 1009 B.C. to 969 B.C. That's a timetable. In the first century, David is long dead, 1,000 years. When David wrote this, God was speaking to Messiah. Sit at my right hand. He existed before the first century. And David called him my Lord. And the word used for is Adonai, and it's, it's a word that's often used in replacement of Yahweh. And uh, David is saying his Lord is Messiah, and he is in relationship with Yahweh, and David is in submission to Messiah. And Messiah hasn't been born yet. What is the significance of Jesus being the son of David? Well, one of the clear implications is he existed long before the first century, didn't he? We call it pre-existence. He was with the Father from the very beginning. David is just pointing this out. The Messiah is God, and he existed long before Jesus appears on the scene. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, uh, Peter gives his first great sermon, and out of this sermon comes the church in response to the gospel. And here's what David said about Jesus. God has raised this Jesus to life, the resurrection, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. That's when the father invited the son to take the most important position in the kingdom. He exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, next slide, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. For Peter, the resurrection and the ascension prove that Jesus is Messiah and David's Lord. Okay? 
but the audience don't understand that. Again, Peter speaks in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, verses 39, and Peter says, we are witnesses of everything he did, meaning Jesus, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. Next slide. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and dead. And that's because he's been raised to the right hand of God. He sits at the right hand of God. And in this position, he is now appointed to be judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets test about testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his names his name and that's the good news and that's the good news for us that Jesus would die on a cross and he would pay the penalty for our sins and he would be raised from the dead he would ascend into heaven as proof uh, Acts 17:31 says this for he has set a day, God, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who was that man? The Messiah, the Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That is the proof. Application for us, if Jesus is Lord, who are you? Do you know who you are? And where you stand. If Jesus is Lord, who are you? Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. King David understood that Jesus, that Messiah was his Lord. David was the servant of Messiah. Revelation 19.16 describes Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When the Apostle John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he fell to the ground as dead. And in chapter 1, he describes himself as the servant of Christ. The Apostle uh, Peter called himself the servant of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. The Apostle James, who was the brother of Jesus... And yes, technically we can say half-brother because they had different fathers. But he called himself servant of Jesus Christ. That's a humbling posture. Jude, another of Jesus' brothers, called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth at the name of Jesus. If Jesus is Lord, who are you? Who are we? Are you his servant? Are you a follower of Christ? Is he master? That's a word we don't like. We don't want to be, have anybody be a master over us, but Jesus is the master. And if Jesus is your Lord, 
When you think about it, tomorrow morning, Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday next week, how will it be lived out? If we could follow you around all day, what would we see that would show that Jesus is your Lord? Next, Jesus gives a warning, verses 45 through 47. Uh, The context, verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said this to his disciples. So he's still in the temple, he's still teaching, now he directs his conversation to his disciples. And he gives a warning to his followers, verse 46. He says, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And Jesus says, beware of these guys, the teachers of the law. They don't practice what they preach. They dress for success. They wear rich man's clothing. And that's the, that's the epitome of so the, the long flowing robes. Working people didn't dress like this. It's silly to wear long flowing robes as a working person. And, but the rich could afford it. And it was a way of displaying their wealth. And remember in the first century, this was a really important concept, that God, uh, God's blessing was on people who had lots of resources. And the opposite was true. It, probably God was cursing those people who didn't have financial resources. There was this mindset, this worldview. Um, These teachers of the law, they love special treatment and places of honor, uh, like in the synagogue, so that um, when this very important teacher of the law came, he probably waited while the room was full, and so uh, somebody could take him to a seat up front. And of course, where the important people sat, was facing the congregation. And then the scriptures would be read from the front, and the prayers could be read from the front, but guess what? Who's watching? And so these leaders sit up front, and they just watch the congregation, and they have this great place of honor. Now I remember as a young pastor, the first time I, when I started our ministry in Stoughton, the practice was that the pastor had to go up on the platform and sit in these great wooden thrones, and the pastor's throne was the highest, and there were two lower thrones right beside it, and you had to face the congregation to start the service, and you know you had to sing in front of the congregation, and that was enough to... I almost went out and didn't go into ministry because of that, <laughs> but you know I, I hated that, and um, as soon as we could, we got those chairs off the stage, and I sat on the front row, because I'm just an ordinary guy, and I come from the congregation. I'm not above the congregation. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm a whole lot better than these guys, but they wanted special treatment for who they were. They wanted to be recognized. Um, they wanted to be recognized at banquets. Uh, they wanted a special place, so everybody knew where the important people sat, at an important social function. And we see their actions in verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for show make, a, make lengthy prayers. 
Now, we don't know much about what it means that they devoured widows' houses, but we know that Jesus didn't appreciate it. Um, it, It's not clear how they took advantage of the widows. And the widows were just about the most vulnerable people in the first century in the land of Israel. They didn't seem to have rights. And if they were a widow, they didn't have a lot of people taking care of them or concerned for them. Um, It may be that these religious leaders took advantage of the resources when they helped widows. Maybe they helped them settle a state and they took a significant cut for themselves. Maybe they approached the widows about special gifts uh, to, to, to give to them. We don't know, but Jesus said they devour widows' houses. They also make lengthy prayers. Um, this is almost uh, a cover-up approach so that they appear to be super spiritual, they're super important, and they're super blessed, they're wealthy, and uh, they can pray fantastic prayers publicly. At least they're long and wordy and maybe, maybe even great theology. But... Jesus said, for Jesus, it's all about appearance. It's all about a status. The outcome, Jesus said in verse 47, these men will be punished most severely. Um, he refers to the final judgment. And how does he know? Who is going to be the final judge? And they're going to appear before the great white throne, Revelation chapter 20. And he already knows. Quick application for us. If you are prideful, you dishonor God. Now, you may not be like the teachers of the law. You don't wear long flowing robes. You don't do really long prayers to impress people. Um, You don't want important places at social gatherings. You don't do that because it's not cool. Um, They were full of pride. Pride is about making yourself too important. Pride is about thinking you're better than other people. It, it's so, it can happen so easy in our culture because we are about comparing ourselves with other people. How do we stack up? And what we do is we pick a place where we think we fit. These people are better than us, but we're better than these people. And uh, it's real easy in our culture when we, when we compare ourselves. How, do we, how are we in... Uh, sports. Who's the most athletic? Who's really good and who's not so coordinated? And we compare ourselves. Who's really good in music? Who is very skillful in music with instruments or vocally? And somebody's not so good. Um, Or who's really good at public speaking? There's all kinds of ways. Who makes the most money? Who has the highest paying job? And there's ways that we compare ourselves And it's easy to think somehow we are more important. The Apostle Paul would say, what do you have that you did not receive? Whether it's your your intellectual abilities or your spiritual giftedness or your financial resources, what do you have that you did not receive? Pride opposes God and his purposes. And sometimes it may be that God is not working in our life just because we are not very humble sometimes. 
Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 14.3 says, A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God is looking for humble people who understand that their identity is in Christ and their identity is not in how they compare with other people. In our last section, Jesus gives the opposite example of pride and greed of the religious leaders. And he gives a commendation in verses uh, 1 through 4, chapter 21. So, new chapter... Jesus is still in the temple. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So, The context is at the temple where offerings are being taken. In the court of the women, there were 13 receptacles for offering, and they were for different kinds of offerings. Jesus saw people in the temple giving who had different financial resources. Some of these people were quite wealthy. Um, And they're putting money into the receptacles. It may be that even there was somebody present at the receptacle announcing the amount that went in to the offering. Um, Verse 2 is a display. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. So in comparison to the wealthy, those in the long flowing robes, those with high social status, those with resources, comes this poor widow. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn in any way those people who were wealthy, who were putting in, from, uh, putting in offering from their resources. He's not condemning them. He didn't even say that they, he didn't say that they, were, they weren't generous. He talks about the poor widow. She put in two small copper coins. Um, They were called leptas. It was the smallest coinage available in the first century. It's hard to figure this out, but they were worth less than a penny. Actually, quite a bit less than than our penny. And, you know, we we throw pennies away. If we do, we don't worry about it. And I don't know how much a lepta would buy, Not much, but it had some value because it was part of the coinage. So she put in her copper coins, and Jesus pays her tribute in verse 3. He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And this was a surprise to the audience. Not that she put in the two leptas. That didn't surprise anybody. Nobody was paying attention. What surprised the audience 
was what Jesus said about her and that she had put in more than all the others. Because it didn't make sense to them because all they could see were the dollar signs or the denarius signs or whatever the coinage was. They saw big numbers as important. And Jesus notices how small the amount is but how big the heart is. And that's what moves the heart of God, is the heart of his people when it comes to generosity. Um, so application here for us. If God has a goal for you to be more generous, what is your goal? If God has a goal for you to be more generous, what is your goal? Uh, we have a core value here at the bridge. We say that generosity is God's antidote for materialism. It displays the heart of God and a heart for God. What is your goal regarding generosity? Here's a suggestion. The suggestion is to have a plan. Plan to grow your heart in generosity. Jesus said, where your money is, there will your heart be also. Plan to grow. Simple suggestion from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, now about the collection of the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. This is instructions for the church. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So, have a plan for the first day of every week. What is your plan? Okay? Plan to set aside a sum of money. Um, this is not about volunteering your time. This is a sum of money. If you have income, I've always told college students, if you have um, an allowance of $10 a week, you're a poor college student, could you set aside a dollar for God? Um, the Apostle Paul says, each one should set aside a sum of money. Each married couple, together, talking it through, making a plan for their family. And parents, this is important. This is what you teach your kids. Kids don't get this when they grow up and have to figure it out as adults. It, I mean, it takes a really long time. It can really be a hard learning process. It's real easy when they learn it at home. It's just their lives. It's always been important. It's about one's heart. It's a sum of money. It's in keeping with your income. The idea is you, you don't give more than your income. It's within your income. And it, it's a decision you get to make. It's a portion. It's a piece of the pie. 
and you get to decide how big the piece of pie is that you set apart for God. And I always ask, you've heard me before, do you know the portion that you give? I think you should. Between you and God, it's part of the plan. It's part about being intentional with the resources God has provided to, to, uh, for you. Um, one of the questions that often comes up, should I give before taxes or after taxes? You ever heard that question? I choose to give before taxes because the government is not first in my life. That's real simple for me. The idea is for you to have a plan that's reasoned out. Um, and Paul says it, the idea is uh, giving is to be regular. You even get to decide what regular means. It's to be systematic. There's a system in place on how this works for you. It's to be proportionate. You get to decide the portion, okay? And, and, and the idea is, okay, Paul says, I'm coming. There's a need. You should have a plan so that you can meet it when I arrive. So I don't have to guilt everybody into a big offering. That's what he's saying. And uh, people should think carefully about how they handle their finances, and they should plan to serve God with their resources. Mother Teresa once said, and I think it's fitting with the, the widow, she said, um, the more you have, the less you can give. And the less you have, the more you can give. That's how she saw the world. Because she had so little personally, she said, I can give everything. The more you have, the less you can give. Does what you have have you? The more you have, the less you can give. The less you have, the more you can give. Is that true? Let's stand and pray. Father, I want to thank you for uh, what we can learn from Jesus. Thank you for his wisdom. Thank you for his leadership. Thank you for his teaching. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of your word. Help us to grow as followers of Christ. Help us to become more like Jesus. May, I, may we understand what it means to be that Jesus is Lord. May we understand personally what it means that Jesus is our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.